Welcome to the Why God Why podcast. I am here as a host, Peter Engler, Adult Ministries Pastor at Browncroft Community Church. I'm also here with our sub-producer, not sub because he's second chair quarterback, but sub because it's a vacation week, is Dave Bodie. Um, he also edits some of our podcasts. I'm here with our guest, uh, David Hurtwick. He's a pastor at Trinity Assembly in Clay, New York. We've had him on before. He was in our first season and first couple episodes, and we're continuing our series on grief. Um, and the question we're engaging today is this, why doesn't my grief have an end date? And just as a reminder, you know, my usual co-host, John Amayo, isn't here. You know, his mom passed away from the coronavirus, and, um, you know, little did we know that this series would come in 2020. We kind of knew that people were grieving for various different reasons, knowing that a co-host would lose, um, you know, their mom, but also just kind of knowing that 2021 is coming, at least at the recording of this, but it's here. We just wanted to take a moment, whether you're grieving because you've lost someone or you don't know that you're grieving, but you are, we wanted to talk about this topic. And I think Dave brings a unique perspective on this question. Why doesn't my grief have an end date? So Dave, I, um, I'm glad to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Uh, it's good to be with you. It's always nice to be invited back somewhere. <laughs> you know, you can get invited to something on accident the first time or but when you get invited back, it feels like, okay, I didn't, uh, I didn't mess up too much the first time. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of our podcast listeners are wondering why I keep getting asked. No, but that's anyways. And it, <laughs> you know, I will say this, it's weird not having a co-host. So I'm, you know, I'm a little off my game, but I think we're ready. Why don't we start here, Dave? Um, you know, we've been asking every guest this, but how do you define grief? Yeah, when I think of grief, um, you know, I guess I think of it in two ways. I think of grief as an emotion, an experience, but also as a process. Um, so I guess for me, grief is the way in which we holistically respond to the experience or reality of loss. So um, it's the way in which we, and I think the, I threw the word holistic in because grief can feel like it's happening on one level only. But the reality is, is that in my experience, anyway, grief has such an impact beyond just our emotion. It impacts us physically. It impacts us uh, spiritually. It impacts us mentally. And so grief is this holistic response to the experience uh, and the reality of loss. And sometimes the experience of loss and the reality of loss aren't always the same thing. So that's why I think it's helpful to, to put both of those words in there. I, I like how you did that. And, and you know, before we kind of get into your personal story, a lot of people have talked about 2020 being a year of grief. Um, you can put it up there with unprecedented pivot. And you've talked about it as holistically. As you look back to 2020 and as we're the airing of this is in 2021, would you describe 2020 as the year of grief? How would you kind of share that or understand that? Because again, what you're saying is it's not just a feeling like it's even the way you behave and think. And I don't know. I just be curious about that. I mean, I, the way to answer the question is with a question, which would be, do you feel like 2020 was a year of loss? Mm. And if it was a year of loss, then it was undoubtedly a year of grief. And, you know, I think 
there was this collective experience that maybe makes us feel selfish if we grieve too, um, if we grieve in a way that is too public or that is too pronounced, uh, especially if we didn't lose someone, you know, if someone in our family didn't uh, pass away from COVID this year, you almost feel like, well, I really shouldn't be sad about 2020 because my family is here. They're, they're alive. We made it through. Um, I have a job. Uh, financially, we're stable. You know, there's crises related to COVID around the world that, that have not touched all of us. But, you know, turning grief into some sort of a comparison game is a dangerous place because you're not responsible to grieve for somebody else's year. You're, you're responsible to understand, own, and grieve for the things that you've lost in 2020. So, you know, for, for me as a pastor of a local church, and, and this will feel so sort of trite potentially, I'm just trying to make a point that we all have to pay attention to what we've lost, whether it's big or small, whether it's profound or, you know, not that, not that significant. Uh, you know, when COVID came in, when COVID really started to blow up in our communities in February and March, I think when churches first shut down, some of us who were optimistic thought, well, we'll wait this out a few weeks and we'll come back on Easter Sunday and it will be this amazing celebration. Of course, for churches, Easter Sunday is Super Bowl. You know, it's like, this is the Sunday where everybody that's going to show up shows up. You, you put all your effort, you put, to, you know, to play on a pun, you put your eggs in one basket and you, you just do everything you can. And losing Easter Sunday, I know we all did stuff online, but losing the Easter Sunday gathering, the momentum that churches can build off of that, losing uh, Christmas Eve in some cases, um, losing uh, a summertime church picnic where everybody can be together, losing uh, regular youth gap, all that sort of stuff. Like, I think we have to process that stuff, uh, not make too much of it, because in the end, there were bigger losses in 2020 for many, but also don't overlook it because it affects us. Well, and I think where I struggle is a lot of churches during Christmas were getting this feedback like, you're too positive. Like, you know, Christmas is going to be awesome. And even just as we get to the new year, it's not just churches. I think there's organizations that are getting this other feedback where it's like 2020 is not going to be the best year ever. Like, let's just get through it. Like, don't jinx it. But on the same token, like this has been a hard year and it's almost like the culture around us is telling us like, you have to be in this middle ground. You can't be too positive. And then you can't be too negative. And, and I just think, yeah. I think that even thinking about this series of grief, like, mm. I mean, are, are you even allowed to celebrate, you know, if you get a job promotion, like, because you have four friends that didn't get a job. Like, I feel like we're getting told to do everything, which is really nothing all in the sort. Yeah, I get that. And, and obviously in this day and age, um, the backlash is so swift, you mm -hmm. know, um, with social media and with just the, um, heightened level of communication. But I, I think there is some wisdom in, um, reading the room, mm. you know, uh, having a feel for what the community is walking through, you know, here where I live in Syracuse, uh, we're in Onondaga County and this week alone, 69 people, I think lost their lives related to COVID. Mm. Right. So for, for me to get up in the pulpit, and make light in any way of COVID um, would just be so tone deaf and so unkind and so unsympathetic. And so 
uh, I think we have to have considerations for those in our community who have suffered much and are celebrating the holiday without someone that they love. I also think that as Christians, as pastors, as ministry leaders, the good news that we ultimately have to offer does not hinge on any of the things I just described. It's, it's deeper than all of that. It's more real than all of that. And so I wouldn't make any apologies for celebrating the birth of our Savior. If anything, it's these moments that makes it even more necessary and more worth celebrating. Man, I I feel like we're teed up for, for this kind of next question because I, I really, hearing you say read the room, one of the things I appreciate about you, Dave, is you are really thoughtful and um, you really think about things deeply. And before 2020, you had some personal experiences with grief. And, you know, just to have someone say read the room kind of tells me you've read the room of your own heart. So I guess what I'm curious about is, can you share with our listeners what your experience with grief is? Yeah. Um, so in the end of 2016, my dad, who uh, he would have been 66 at the time, was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. This happened right around Thanksgiving of 2016. And if our listeners know anything about pancreatic cancer, it's one of the worst kinds in the sense that there's no treatment for it. Um, and by the time you're feeling the symptoms of it, you're almost always in stage four, stage four, meaning it's spread beyond the pancreas. Mm. So it became clear early on that there was no surgical solution and that while chemotherapy was available, it was not chemotherapy specific to pancreatic cancer that doesn't currently exist. So, you know, this was a pretty jarring, uh, pretty jarring news for us to process as a family. Um, my mom, <clears throat> my sister, who's two years older than me, myself, my brother, who's seven years younger than me, and then my sister has four kids and I have three kids. And so we walked through that season very in a very different way than normal. Everything felt different with the reality of this could be it. You know, outside of some sort of uh, miracle, this will be my dad's last Thanksgiving. This will be his last Christmas. And uh, he, the chemo was totally ineffective. Nothing against the doctors, of course. It just wasn't effective. And uh, he ended up staying home until he passed away uh, on February, uh, February 15th, uh, was it 15th or 16th, uh, 2017. And we, we had his services uh, on February 19th, which would have been his 67th birthday. Um, And so, you know, that was a difficult journey. It was about two months from diagnosis to, to his death. And so, you know, you have some opportunity to have some conversations and to say some things and to capture some moments. And I'm thankful for that. You know, if there's any gift about a diagnosis like that, it's that you do have some time to do some things that need to be done. Um, you know, we, we're, we're from a faith tradition that believes that if God wants to heal somebody, he certainly can. It's not on demand. He doesn't know it to us and we can't conjure it up. But every now and then I think the kingdom of God breaks in on the kingdom of earth and we see incredible things. And that can be a physical miracle. It could be the reconciliation of a marriage. Um, It could be kindness in our hearts. You know, that's all the kingdom breaking in. And so I think our prayer was, God, if it's in your will, we'd love to see the kingdom break in on these cancer cells and just 
do something incredible for your glory. That's not what God chose. And so he passed away. Um, he was the founding pastor. Him and my mom had co-planted, co-pastored this church. So there were layers to that grief journey because my mom was still technically a co-senior pastor, but in her grief journey, really not in a place to lead the way the church needs to be led in that season. I, at the time, was serving a network of churches, about 330 churches in the state of New York called the Assemblies of God. And thankfully, they allowed me to fill the pulpit for my dad when I could and to kind of serve as a teaching pastor for the rest of 2017. And then at the end of 2017, I uh, submitted my name for consideration and was elected to serve. And I've been there as a lead pastor since 2018. What made that year more complex was that in October... Of the same year, October 7th, my younger brother, who was, uh, he would have been 32, um, 32 or 33, he, he, uh, passed away suddenly. He was an elementary school teacher in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I remember, you know, with grief, you know, with grief, there's certain moments you wish you could forget, but you'll never forget. <laughs> uh, specific phone calls, you know, um, having to call my brother about my dad, having, getting the phone call about my brother having to call my sister about my brother, having to drive to my mom's house and tell her about, you know, those are like the moments like you kind of wish you just could just somehow like move on from them, but they're always going to be with you. And so, you know, my mom and I, the next morning, we're on a plane to Las Vegas. We got all this stuff. By the way, this was a week after that massive shooting in Las Vegas. I don't know if, if our listeners remember in 2017, mm -hmm. the guy who was up in the hotels who opened fire on uh, an a outdoor concert. This is a week later. So getting my brother to the coroner and through that whole thing was a nightmare because they were processing. There's only one coroner in the whole county of Las Vegas. And uh, they're processing all of that. So long story short, we um, buried my brother about a week after he passed away. And so, you know, I don't, I guess at this point, I'll just, I'll leave it there. Obviously, 2017 was a nightmare. You know, it was, it was an unthinkable series of losses. And, um, just so disorienting, you know, on so many levels. You know, I, um, so our question today is why doesn't grief have an end date? And what it, what hit me as you were talking, I mean, we've known each other for years. Um, you know, I'm sure that there's listeners out there and I'm, I'm trying to be careful because pastoring is kind of the same as any other vocation, but it's also different. There's, but like, I'm sure there's listeners out there that like, their parent died and they took over the family business and like every day they have to encounter this grief and it's different with pastoring, but there are some similarities. I mean, this question of why doesn't my grief have an end date? I mean, do you think about that when you show up? I mean, are you in the same office that your daddy? I mean, those were some of the questions that were just kind of going through my mind as you were telling the story. Yeah. I mean, I'm sitting, I'm sitting right now in his office, you know, um, and some of these books on the shelf behind me are his books. And, you know, there's things hanging on this wall that were here when it was his office that I decided to kind of keep up. And there's a piece of art on this wall over here that I'm looking at that is has specific meaning to my brother. And so, um, yeah, there, there is a joy in continuing the work that God had my dad and my mom begin. There's a weight to it. Um, there's a deep responsibility, um, you know, and there's also this just sense of like, you know, I know my dad would be proud, 
you know, and I know that he would love that I've, that I've followed in his footsteps. And so, you know, one of the things, so in the middle of losing my father and my only brother, I also changed jobs, mm. which in of itself can be a very destabilizing um, event. And so I had to really wrestle through, is this the next step for me? Because I feel like I have to, am I acting out of grief in some sort of noble way? Thinking like, this is what the right, this is what a good son would do. He'd take his dad's church and, and make sure things don't fall apart, so to speak. Um, or am I um, doing it because this is what God has prepared me to do for all these years? And one of the gifts in this season of grief was Aaron and I, my wife, we had such defined clarity that this was our next step. And God had prepared it, prepared us for this in so many ways before we ever got a diagnosis from my dad that I didn't realize he was preparing us for. And, and just to speak candidly, it was mostly through other opportunities to take other positions mm. um, that around the country, um, in higher education, um, in a different position within this network. And by wrestling through those opportunities, Aaron and I concluded two things. Number one, our next step is going to be back to the local church. And number two, we're not leaving central New York. So with those two things very clear in our hearts before my dad ever got sick, it made the decision to step into this position, or at least to put my name in for this position, to I could trust my motives more because it was sort of settled before the grief journey began. And I think that's one of the ways that God was very good and gracious to us. Wow. Wow. Um, I, I love what you even talked about. Cause one of the things I got concerned with, like this was John's idea and, and like, I was like, no, we shouldn't do grief. And I don't know, maybe I just don't want to talk about sad. I'm usually okay with it, but you know, what I love what you're saying is, and I think it's important for our listeners to hear, like you've gone through grief, not just, in the loss of loved ones, but you just talked about grief with, you know, starting a new job. And, you know, I wonder how many people sit back and have those conversations. I mean, are there other examples? I mean, you're talking about a year of 2017. I, I do want to talk a little bit more about your brother. Cause I think that that's something to just kind of lean into, but I mean, were there any other things that you look back on and you go, man, I was really grieving there. It might not have been directly correlated to an event, but I could tell, I mean, was there anything that you could point out? One of the things I learned about grief um, is it's a lot more than sadness. Mm -hmm. um, it's so disorienting. It's the best word I can think of. It's so destabilizing. It's, it's hard to think. Um, it's hard to remember. Um, it's, 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 um, it, it puts such a like, it's like there would be there would be times in 2017 where, you know, I would just feel myself audibly just breathe, just like someone had just like punched me in the gut. Mm. And it wasn't like, oh, man, I'm getting emotional thinking about it. You know, you just like, I think you're, 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 you almost, your body at times just takes over <laughs> and it's just like, you got to breathe.
you know, I think you and I work on words a lot. And um, if you're still listening to this podcast, that what Dave just said is that way. Because what we're talking about here is sometimes you don't even know, you don't have words for it. You, you have tears, you have breathing, and uh, it's just a lot. Yeah, yeah. You know, I definitely learned that. I'm so grateful for, you know, the, the I'm forgetting the scripture reference right now where it says that the spirit at times prays through us with groans, you know, when we don't have words. I know there's different ways to interpret that. But for me, it was like just the heavy sigh, the, uh, just the Aaron would see me at times just staring off and just shaking my head side to side like this, just side to side. just like, I, you know, just like I cannot believe this is this is where we are at. You know, I just can't believe, you know, and you're just, I think, you know, as the oldest son in the family, as the one who needed to step up to the plate too, there are ways in which we learn to delay our grief journey so that we can help others. Mm. And I think that's important, but also dangerous. And I had good friends in my life that just made sure like that I was feeling it, you know, that I wasn't just pushing it down, that I was that I, that I was aware of how I was doing and what was going on. And it's so, you know, I say holistic, it's like, um, it affects your emotion so much. Like, you know, one of the things I learned in the season was, um, so, um, I like being in control. Like, you know, one of my sort of heart idols, so to speak, is the feeling of being in control. When you start losing people, you know, when your dad gets diagnosed with cancer and you literally cannot do a single thing Mm. to slow down his death, and then your brother passes and not only can you not control it, you didn't, you couldn't see it coming or you didn't see it coming. What I found was my emotional margin for other things that I was trying to control became so thin. So I got, I found myself being very, very short with my daughters. If they were just making noise in the back seat, and I said, Hey girls, come on, keep it down. And normally I could handle a few interactions before I kind of got frustrated but it went from zero to a hundred. And then I'd be like, well, what is my deal? Like, this isn't me. Like, why am I? And I, I just realized like that loss of control that I'm grieving. Part of the danger of the grief journey is everything you think you've lost, you know, you've lost, or you don't even realize you've lost. You're going to try and get it back everywhere else. And so the control I lost and losing my dad and my brother, I, I, I could not risk losing control in lesser important areas of my life because it just wasn't adding up. It wasn't filling my control tank, so to speak. And it made me do a lot of spiritual reflection to what I looked to for real strength and hope. And so, you know, that's one of the things that that grief did for me. Well, and I I just kind of want to back up. Um, So with your dad, you kind of knew the date was on the horizon. And then with your brother, I mean, it was a surprise. Where were you on the grief process with your dad and then all of a sudden have your brother walk through this? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's what made the year so hard is our whole family was, had two, at least two grief journeys going at the same time on layered, but they're at different places. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think by October, this is about eight months after my dad passed. I think I was getting to a point of acceptance. You know, I, I, um, I prayed for my dad. I asked God to heal him. 
I also have a theological framework. And I will say this, by the way, about grief. If you're not grieving now, um, this is a great time to sort out your theology on suffering. Because uh, if you don't have it sorted now, you're not going to be able to sort it once you're in it. Um, you're you're just going to you're just going to have to endure whatever your theology actually already is. So I had a theology of suffering that allowed me to trust in a sovereign God who works all things out for His good, who makes all things new, who owes us nothing, who gives us everything, of whom I don't make any demands. Um, and so. When my dad got sick and when he got the diagnosis, you know, I wasn't angry at God. I know some people are, and that's, you know, if you are, you need to be honest about that. And God can handle that, of course. I, I really wasn't. That wasn't my thing. I was sad. Um, and I was sad for my mom. But I wasn't angry. Uh, and my dad was never angry. And my dad's approach from the second he got the diagnosis was it's a win-win. God decides to heal me. It's to his glory. And if he takes me, I'm with him. Mm. So it's a win-win. It's a loss for us that stay behind. <laughs> but it's a win-win for him. And so I, I wasn't, I think by the time my brother passed, I probably was close to acceptance. Not, not of course, you know, and that's a light, you, you can be in there for years. Um, and, and the grief journey is not nearly as linear as we probably would like it to be, or as books make it seem like it could be. Um, because you're always learning more things you've lost. And you think you knew what you've lost when someone dies, but, but then when you, two months later, when something happens and you would normally call that person about it, you realize you, oh, I've also lost that. So, um, so I was probably nearing acceptance with my dad. And then when my brother passed, obviously I was right back at the beat. I mean, just total shock with him. Mm. So when you were at total shock, um, was it, did you reflect on your dad or was it, you know, you talked about two different levels. Was it, you know, I think we try to compartmentalize, you know, grief like, well, today Dave's just grieving his brother's lost and tomorrow he's just grieving his dad. So, I mean, did you feel like it was compartmentalized? Was it more spaghetti? I mean, how, I mean, take us through the weeks after that, walking through that, you know, what that was like. Yeah, uh, you know, because I'm a pastor and because I'm, again, sort of the oldest male in the family. And because I'm a leader, both when my dad passed and my brother passed, in my shock, I still was highly functional mm. and very on top of getting things done that needed to get done. There's so many details that you don't even realize until you lose someone close to you that you're responsible for. And so, so many phone calls you have to make, so many things you have to arrange. And then being a pastor, I have to, not have to, but I, I get to coordinate the services, right? So it's like, and then I shared the message at both services. So there's some, there's a certain like level of activity that kind of just keeps you going one foot in front of another for the next couple of weeks. Um, but, you know, one thing that comforted us as a family was the thought of my brother and my dad being together again. Um, you know, they, you know, my dad loved all of us equally, you know, but Josh was the youngest and, you know, there's, there's a special connection with, with Josh and my, and my dad. And so I think there is something that we just thought, you know, they're together and, and they have each other. And, you know, obviously theologically, we know that, that, you know, they have Jesus, which matters more than each other, but still it's nice for us to think of them having each other. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, 
um, because I'm task oriented, because I wanted to get stuff done, because my main concern, honestly, was my mom. You know, so when you when you sort of like, I wouldn't say I set aside my grief. I felt it. But I in the midst of my grief, I was ultra aware of how I felt like my mom was doing, you know, because that's a lot. You mm-hmm. know, um, I think she had it the worst to lose your husband who, you know, her and my dad, some couples, they they they're together a lot, but they don't work together. Right. So they're used to not being with each other for eight to nine hours a day. Well, my mom and my dad were never apart. Mm-hmm. So they're whether they worked, whether they went to the YMCA, whether they were at the house, they did everything together. So there literally wasn't a place she could go that he shouldn't have been there with her. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so, you know, there was that. And then and then to lose, you know, your youngest child, you know, I think there's nothing more unnatural than a parent burying a child. Um, and so. So much of my energy was devoted to I got to get my mom through this. Like she's got to, she's got, I got, she's got to make this through it. And then feeling the weight of my own family, you know, you know, shepherding my, my young girl's hearts who were devastated. And so, um, I guess to answer your question, it was all a little bit, um, it was, it was, there was a lot of activity, a lot of things to get done, a lot of sorrow, a lot of sadness, and then just sort of this like ongoing level of, I can't believe, I just cannot believe this is where we're at. So I guess I relate to that a lot. So I guess I'm kind of wondering, your dad passes away, your brother passes away, you're doing, you're coordinating, you're, you know, making all the phone calls. Was, was there a moment that it all hit you or was it more of a process of, you know, I mean, you can get punched in the face once by Mike Tyson or, you know, you can have someone punch you in the gut 20 times, it still probably hurts. Mm-hmm. But I mean, mm-hmm. what, what was it like kind of for you, so to speak? I think it was, I feel like it was both, mm-hmm. you know, there were some pretty intense moments of grief. Um, and then just this steady drip of just, uh, just this weight, this sorrow, this heaviness, this just, I remember just saying, I'm just so sad. You know, it's just that this is an overwhelming sadness of it all. And, um, you know, you can't, I don't think it doesn't matter how good of a son you were, how good of a brother you were, how good of a spouse you were, how good of a friend you were. I think it's our nature when someone passes to think, ah, I could have been better, you know? Um, and so, you know, you kind of carry some of that with you too. And so you're, you're sorting it all out. Um, but you know, there's no doubt that the intensity in my journey, there's no doubt that the intensity of the grief lessens with time. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go away and it will catch you in the most unexpected moments, like even just now. I mean, I haven't really got emotional about it like that probably in, you know, a couple months. So it's just like, you don't always know when it's coming. It, initially, it's like just the wave, just a tidal wave, just bam, bam, bam. You can't get on your feet. And then the way I describe it is the waves start to, come a little less frequently, a little slower. But sometimes for some people, there's even a grief in that because they've lost um, the, the, you know, that you people struggle with this feeling of like, I should never be happy again. And that's how I'm going to honor them and prove my love to them. And that, of course, is not healthy either. Um, you know, so I think for some people, when they start to feel less sad or less frequently sad, then they feel sad about that. 
as if they've somehow lost some of their love and appreciation for that person. And I think that's a lie. You know, mm-hmm. I, I just don't think we can sustain that level of grief. Um, grief will be with us, I think, forever. But there is an intensity of the grief that is somewhat time specific, in my experience. Well, and then there's two observations with that. Um, I'm just kind of remembering of you. And the first thing is, if anybody follows you on social media, you've just been very open. And I, I'd even say helpful. Like, I feel like every birthday from your dad and your brother, the anniversary, like you just, hey, this is who I am. This is part of my story. You know, I just kind of want to remind you because I, I don't think people always feel that permission when they grieve. And so I, I look at that as kind of like a positive activity, but I'll never forget you and I had this conversation. So we, we vacation, my family, we vacation at Ocean City, New Jersey every year. And you mm-hmm. and I were talking about that kind of going back and forth. And I, I think I just made a comment to you and I said, yeah, man, I can't wait for you to get back here. And, and you made this comment, you're like, you know, that was the last vacation with my dad. You know, I don't, I don't think, I don't think I'm going to go back there for a while. And, you know, I just kind of think about how practical that is, because it sounds like in grief, there's some things you do that's positive and there's other things you're like, you know, I'm just not going there, you know? So how do you negotiate all of that? Ooh, that's a really good observation, a really good question. I totally understand what you're saying, and I've, but I've not broken it down that way in my head before. So it's a hard question for me to answer, but I think that, um, you just got to be as honest as you can about what is wise for you emotionally. Um, what will honor them versus what will unnecessarily, and I say that carefully because I don't want to decide for other people what's necessary and what isn't, but there is a point in which um, we almost lean into the grief journey for the purpose of, uh, I don't know how to say this, like, Again, like I'm going to chase down experiences that are going to make me sad. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense. So mm. I'm going to put myself in positions where I'm going to cry again. And if that's what someone needs to do at different times in their grief journey, that's okay. But the danger of grief, so to, to get a little pastoral on this conversation, the danger of grief is loss, right? You know, grief, grief is always related to loss. And when you lose something, so one of the dangers is, 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 that, that I see as a pastor in the lives of people, both Christians and non-Christians, is that every single human being is wired to build their identity around something or someone. We just can't find a way forward without that. We're, we so desperately need an identity. And so when you lose something or someone that was your identity, the danger of that is, is that you have to replace it with something. Mm-hmm. But if you can't replace it with good things or with God himself, then some people replace their loss of a person with uh, they, they replace that person with the actual experience of having lost them. So now their new identity becomes that they are a um, person who has lost much, um, that they are a um, that they're a widow, that they're the father of a deceased child. And while that always will be part of your identity, when it becomes your primary identity, then you have to feed it. Right. Mm. And so, you know, I I know I'm being a little theoretical in in here and maybe I don't hopefully this will be helpful and and not in any way disrespectful to listeners. But this is just an observation I've had. 
my identity is not wrapped around a deceased father or deceased brother. My identity is wrapped around Christ, who he is and what he's done. And so it stabilizes me. It doesn't mean the grief isn't there. The sorrow isn't there. It doesn't mean I don't have questions. It doesn't mean I don't have doubts. It doesn't mean I don't have frustrations. It means that ultimately I don't need to fill my identity back up when I lose someone with something unhealthy, which sometimes happens. You know, people make their identity the victim or the, or the person who has lost so much. And while that's all true and you need to own it, it also shouldn't be your core sense of who you are. You know, I think what you're saying makes a ton of sense. Um, so I'm married to a counselor. My mother-in-law is a counselor. So I'll never forget, we got forced, I shouldn't say forced, I loved it, to see Inside Out. And that movie would <laughs> that movie would look totally different if sadness was running the show as opposed to joy. Yeah. And I think that's what you're talking about is for some of us, you know, and that's why that movie's so brilliant, maybe adults like it more than kids, is like you can all see like there's that moment when the anger just runs the dad. And then, you know, but you can definitely tell that is sadness, which played by Phyllis from The Office, if sadness is running the show, like you're out of equilibrium. Yeah. Yes. And uh, by the way, I don't know if it's the same people who made Inside Out, but my family and I just watched Soul last night on Disney+. And it's got a similar sort of vibe to Inside Out. I love Soul. I thought it was a very well done, worth watching. It was some really interesting points about sorrow and suffering and grief. Um, but, I, I, you know, I, I do feel like um, in the midst of all this suffering, one of the things I've learned is you, can't, you cannot underestimate the value of even sorrow and suffering and loss. And you can't underestimate its power. The value is that it can in of itself be a gift to you. And some of the ways in which loss and sorrow and suffering and grief was a gift to me is it, first off, practically speaking, it revealed to me that I had more than I thought I had all along mm-hmm. uh, in, in support from family and from friends and from people in the community. And it just was this unbelievable reminder of how loved I was and how loved my family was. And you don't see that outpouring any other time quite like when there's grief. And maybe that's a, maybe that's a bad thing, but it's reality, you know? Um, but also I just realized like suffering can be a gift if it exposes that I've been putting my hope and trust in the wrong things or in the wrong people. And it does have a way of doing that. Suffering will really expose who you love most, what you trust in most. And, and that matters so much that if suffering does that for us, then it, it can be a gift, but it also has the power to really become our master, to really become our Lord, so to speak, and to really own us and control us and define us and ultimately to destroy us. And so, you know, I think you have to have appreciation for what it is and what it can bring us and what it can teach us of Christ and also be aware of its power. And, you know, one of the things I love about the Christian faith is that I don't know who said this, but the Christianity is the only faith that at the center of it is the suffering and humiliation of its own God. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, we serve a God who uh, the scripture says was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he knows sorrow and separation and pain beyond anything that any of us will experience. And so um, that gives me hope in all situations that Jesus suffered, not so that I wouldn't suffer, but so that my suffering would not be without end and that my suffering would not be without meaning. And, uh, you know, that that's very helpful for me that year. Well, I kind of want to move forward um, in this sense. You know, 
you you have a youngest daughter. I'm a I'm a big fan of youngest. I'm I'm the third child in my family, and uh, you know. So one of the things we talked about before the show was, you know, your your youngest Maddie has cerebral palsy, I believe, and yep. you know we just kind of talked about a little bit of the grief with that, and you know I want to be careful of using the word suffering, but in some ways, you know, there you even mentioned this before. There's a grief with kind of every milestone, and you know you're on Instagram and you're on, you're telling her story. You know, I, I think I saw Christmas that, you know, even if you listen to any sermon illustrations and, you know, I listen to Trinity, even though I don't go there and, you know, you'll talk about Maddie, like she wants to be in the middle of everything. She's got two older siblings. Here she is on Christmas day, getting on the, the air hockey table. Like, I mean, there is just nothing yeah. to deter her, but you know, she's going to live the rest of her life kind of going through this. How has... Yep. your past grief kind of informed you with this grief. Um, you know, and how are you and your wife and your kids kind of walking through that? Yeah, we got some great advice early on. So Maddie was born in 2014. She was born at 27 weeks. She suffered a grade four brain hemorrhage in utero and spent the first 79 days of her life in the NICU mm -hmm. Had multiple brain surgeries and has had surgery since then. And um, her primary diagnosis is cerebral palsy. She also has, um, epilepsy and uh, a few other uh, things. But um, we received some great advice early on from people who had walked through something similar. And it was basically, you have to realize that even, so we thought she wouldn't survive birth. So when you go into the emergency C-section and that's your starting point, then everything from there is gravy on top, you know? So it didn't feel like grief at first. It felt like, oh my goodness, she's alive. She's going to make it. She's going to come home. And then she starts hitting certain milestones where we realize she's verbal, she's smart, she has a personality. Because those things are all sort of, we didn't know if they were in the card, so to speak. And then, you know, you get the diagnosis, she has cerebral palsy. And there's a huge spectrum of people with cerebral palsy. So you even still have hope, like, maybe she'll be on this end of the spectrum and not this end of the spectrum. And, you know, so it doesn't feel like grief. But then, you know, I think of like, you know, when she starts saying things like, because she has her left hand is great, her right hand and her legs don't work right or well, I should say. When she says to you all of a sudden, I'm not a very good clapper, you know, and she's realizing, like, I can't, my right hand doesn't, I want to clap louder and I can't. Or she sees other kids running around and she's like, I want to do Then all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, like, this is really hard. This is sad, you know, and, and, you know, so I'm going to be grieving. There's things that I did with my other daughters I'll never do with Maddie you know, teaching them certain sports, uh, how to ride a bike, you know, uh, someday walking them down the aisle. I mean, Maddie could get married someday, but she most likely will not walk down the aisle, you know? So there's, there's these, and there's things even smaller than that, that you realize like, oh, we're never going to have this with her. And you do kind of have to name and own that loss. And then just also the, sort of juxtaposition of that versus all the things that we do have and to be so thankful. And I think that's so important in, in grief and sorrow is, you know, the two things I think that, that helped me the most besides my faith and my family was sort of to intentionally find things to be grateful for every day. And also to continue to serve others. Mm -hmm. Like one of the things that grief can do is it can make you such a sort of navel gazer that you just kind of like, it's so focused on how you're feeling and how you're doing and how, and you forget like 
there's a lot of people hurting mm. and everybody's, everybody's lost something and everybody's going through sorrow and everybody's going through grief. It's different than yours. Uh, but there's people that need your story. They need your strength. They need your nearness. They need your presence. They need your friendship. And there's nothing about grief that should ultimately steal from us the ability to help others walk through theirs. In fact, the Bible teaches clearly that it's through the grief and the experiences that we that we have that we're going to be most effective in ministering to other people. So Aaron and I are positioned now to minister to families with kids with special needs in a way that we were not seven years ago. Mm. And, you know, that's a gift. Now, it's a costly gift. It means that we have a little girl who can't walk. But at the same time, I ha- I, we choose to embrace the whole thing as, God, what have you done here to glorify yourself, to advance your kingdom, and to help us do what you've called us to do? You know, I I kind of see just what you just said through the lens of my family. You know, my sister's a cancer survivor, and she's, you know, at seven years old, she had a tumor, she had one kidney removed, and you know, whenever I was a kid and I had to go to the bathroom, she'd always remind me, I have one kidney, you can hold it. But, um, you know, I, I, you know, I'm thinking about this. Um, when Susan had cancer, there was a Charlie Brown, um, why Charlie Brown, why? And there's the scene where Linus comes to the two siblings and says, you know, where's your sister? And they're like, you only come for my sister. And I think about that, like, and if my brother was on the episode now, he'd say, if I ever get green mint chocolate chip ice cream again, I'm just going to throw it because that's kind of what happened. Like all of a sudden, all this attention. And so, you know, I guess I'm kind of in the grief journey. You're also trying to help your kids. And I'm thinking uh, (laughs) of Lilla and Caroline, you know, how have you kind of walked with them? Because it's not always and I think this is unfair. It's not always like a jealousy thing. You know, like, I don't think anybody sits there like, I I want this to happen to my sister, but you notice this undue attention. You should be thankful. I mean, how are you walking, you know, through your daughters with that? Listen, that's a real thing you're describing. And and actually, you know how um, there's a lot of data out there on how marriages don't often survive the loss of a child. Mm. Um, And there's also data on how marriages often do not do not survive the birth of a special needs child. Mm. Um, and, uh, I don't have that study in front of me, but I've, I've seen it and read it. And I think it takes, so to use a kind of like a, a term that everybody's throwing around, it takes a lot of emotional IQ, right? A lot of awareness of how you're feeling, how other people in the room are feeling, how your girls are doing. But for us, like, so I have, my girls are born on the 18th and the 19th of a month. So Lilia, it was February 19th. Uh, Caroline is, um, sorry. Lilia is May 19th and Caroline is February 18th. And so in my calendar, my iCal every month on the 18th, it says Caroline day. And on the 19th, it says uh, Lilia day. And it's just my reminder of like this at one day a month, like I'm going to go get a meal with this girl. I'm going to take her out. Cause you're right. Like in crisis, all the energy of the family goes to supporting one individual and kids can, can feel, even though they know they shouldn't feel that way, which actually makes it worse. They can feel somewhat jealous of like this person gets all the attention. And then they actually begin to act out in other ways just to secure some of that attention that they desperately need from their parents. So it's been a lot of intentionality on mine and Aaron's part to make sure that the girls don't quote unquote suffer uh, because um, of some of the things that we're having to do to serve Maddie. But also, you know, they're, we really let them be a part of everything 
in Maddie's life. So they have a good understanding and a real appreciation for her challenges. And they're tremendously kind to her. And I don't think they feel like, you know, she's had some really cool opportunities opened up to her. Like she's a part of the Syracuse women's lacrosse team, for example. But every time she goes to visit them, the girls go too, you know, so they kind of share this journey together. Um, but what I think you're saying um, is, a, is something that needs to be talked about in families with kids who have special needs or have a health crisis. You do have to be intentional about how are you continuing to love and care for the other children who can very often feel like their needs are not as important. Mm. Wow. Man, we we could just kind of go on. And it's funny, you know, so we send all of our guests like six or seven questions and like we just kind of went up and, you know, where I want to kind of close and you've kind of hit on this all the way. And, you know, it's funny the way I worded that we do this question. What does Jesus have to say about it? And I worded it, you know, what does Jesus have to say about grief not having an end date? And, um, you know, so I'm going to let you think about it. If John was here, he'd probably start with me. Um, so I have to respond to this question, um, and then, you know, kind of let you, and, you know, as I've been thinking about this topic, um, so the the hard thing about answering this question, we have to answer this for every episode on grief. And I guess you just have to find out exactly what the Bible says. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I guess I've just kind of been thinking about, you know, what, you know, what does Jesus say about grief, not having an end date? And I just kind of go back to David's story. Um, you know, there's someone with a lot of grief in their life. And, you know, I guess I wouldn't push back on someone to tell them, you know, look for that end date. But I guess what I think Jesus would say, you look at David writing the Psalms, you look at all these laments, was I don't think God forces you to have this end end date on this side of eternity. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think about this question, why doesn't my grief have an end date? Um, I'm not saying that you won't have an end date on this side of eternity, but I also don't think you need to put the pressure on yourself to have one because I think there's examples throughout scripture and even Jesus that they walked through this. And, you know, I think one of the things that we're finding out in this series is like everybody grieves differently. And I think the biggest thing that I'm kind of picking up from you is I think everybody grieving differently does not give you license to be sad all the time, but it does give you license to say, stop, you know, this is what's happening. So if I did any heresy, you get to clean it up as usual, but you know, it's all good. (laughs) What does Jesus have to say about grief, not having an end date? Yeah, no, I appreciate how you said that because like you I would, I would avoid telling people how they should necessarily feel. I would say push beneath your feelings and think through what, what have you lost and what does Jesus have to say about the thing that you've lost Mm. and who is Jesus in comparison to the thing that you've lost. And, you know, the Bible is so honest about suffering and grief and sorrow. So many of the Psalms is about lament and lament is sort of this lost art in, um, American church today. You know, um, we feel like we lament things because a bill got passed or because somebody got elected to a position that we didn't want. That's, you know, when the book of Revelation was written to encourage the early believers, they were lamenting over a guy named Domitian who was killing tens of thousands of Christians. You know, so, you know, comparative, right? Uh, What we, what we lament, but 
we, we need to lament is honest. It's God directed. Um, it is raw, but it ultimately, Jesus has the final word, even in our lament. And so when you say, what would Jesus say about this? I think first off about what he's already said about it. And the clearest thing that Jesus ever said about our suffering was the, was when he went to the cross and suffered in our place. And um, I'm so thankful for that, for what it means for me personally, but also that it means I have a God who is not um, unaware of the human experience, uh, rejected, abandoned. Um, most people believe lost his father, um, you know, and then ultimately went to the cross. But, you know, when I also think of what Jesus having the final word on grief, I think of heaven. I thought of heaven so much in 2017, way more than I ever had in my life. And when I think of heaven, I forget who says this, which book this is, um, you know, three things about heaven. Number one, in heaven, um, you and I will serve Jesus the way we wish we always had. Mm. And that that just does so much for my heart and um, gives me so much hope. Secondly, um, in heaven, um, Jesus will heal all of our wounds, not just our big ones, but the ones we're not even aware of, the things that we're grieving that we don't know we're grieving, things that we should be grieving that we aren't grieving. Um, and then lastly, in heaven, Jesus will lead us into ever increasing joy. There is this idea that like um, you get to heaven and it's amazing. And then you just kind of, kind of hope the amazing holds out for all of eternity. And I love the idea. C.S. Lewis um, in his last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, I think it's called the last battle. He talks about the very end, how all of life now symbolizing moving into the next life, you know, this life that we live now is the cover and the title page of a book. But our first day in heaven is chapter one of our actual life. And it's a book where every chapter is better than the one before it. There's nothing in this world that gives us increasing joy, I don't think. There's a diminishing uh, enjoyment of things, whether it's food, you know, the first bite's the best, whether it's the first time you go to a movie theater versus the hundredth time, the first time you go to a live sporting event versus the hundredth. It just all kind of like eventually everything gets old. The glory fades of everything on this earth. The glory fades. Jesus is the one who the glory will increase forever and ever and forever. He'll lead us to ever increasing in joy. And with him, every day with him in eternity will be better than the day before. And we'll be with those that we've lost and those that we love. And for me, that's the final word on grief. No more sorrow, no more suffering, no more tears, no more pain. Uh, all the sad things will come untrue and, you know, we'll reign with Jesus. Folks, I, um, you know, usually I say I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, I hope this episode was meaningful you, to you. Um, I think we're all grieving somehow. Um, but I also think you're knowing, you're learning about people that are probably grieving in ways that you haven't. And so, Dave, I just want to thank you for just being raw and honest. I, I think that this is going to be helpful to many people. We're going to be tagging Dave in all of our posts. Um, you can find him at David Hurtwick. Um, I'm, I'm phonetically pronouncing it the way I, I try to spell it right. So anyways, if I get that wrong, but, um, make sure you follow him, um, make sure you also, uh, just as you share this episode and especially this one, I feel like there's a lot of people that this will just really connect with. So use hashtag WGW podcast. Um, we are at WGW podcast, um, for Instagram and Twitter and then Facebook. And then you can go to our website, whygodwhypodcast.com. Thank you so much for joining us. We're so glad uh, to have you here. 